Welcome to Fate's Wide Wheel, a Quantum Leap podcast with Sam and Dennis. We are coming to you from our top secret headquarters at Project Quantum Leap, but you can find us online at fwwquantumleappod.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Fate's Wide Wheel. And please do us a favor by hitting the subscribe button on iTunes. All right. Hello, everybody. Hello. Welcome to Fate's Wide Wheel. We are here this week to talk about The Last Gunfighter. Yes, The Last Gunfighter. It's been a few weeks. How you been, Sam? You know, uh, I've, I've been pretty good. Uh, work is, is, is a little busier. Life is amazing and wonderful. Hattie turned one this past Sunday, the 14th of July. Um, had my second wedding anniversary the very next day. So Oh, so, happy anniversary. Forgot yeah, to wish you a happy anniversary. Very, very cool. Uh, you know, lots of stuff. Uh, and then tomorrow... Uh, we are leaving on vacation, and we'll be out of town for a week, which will be really, really nice. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, let's dive into this. Well, before we do that, though, let me ask you, uh, how are you? Uh, we're doing great. So yeah. we're getting ready to move. We're selling our condo. We're going back to renting because we don't know how many more years we're going to stay in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So uh, we found a great place. It is huge. It is like two and a half times the, the space that we have now. That's awesome. Uh, it's going to have... Um, uh, an office space it's it's just going to be life is just going to be a whole lot more better here in a few weeks so once we close here um harrison's great he's doing lovely harrison's our son uh betsy is doing great she did not watch the episode with me this week so she is not able to to offer her uh commentary by proxy that she typically does sure sure um but yeah that, that that's my life right now Right on, right on. Well, um, I'm happy for you guys to be uh, getting more space. I know how important that is. Oh, my God. How quickly it seems that you can outgrow places that you figured you would not necessarily outgrow. But, yeah. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, so The Last Gunfighter is our episode this week, uh, directed by Joe Napolitano. This is the 10th. Uh, Quantum Leap episode that he has directed out of 12. Um, The other notable episodes that he has been behind the camera for, if you will, uh, have included Pool Hall Blues, The Leap Home Part 1, Black on White on Fire, Heart of a Champion, Shock Theater, uh, Play Ball, most recently The Wrong Stuff, uh, and he'll go on to do Moments to Live and The Curse of Tahotep will be the last episode. Um, that he directs. So, um, obviously, we're familiar with Joe's work, uh, directed, I mean, really, some of our favorite episodes, yeah. um, you know, easily uh, over, the, over the past four seasons that we've covered so far. Um, of course, he also worked as a producer on the show as well. Uh, our writer for this uh, is really interesting. We'll take a quick digression, but uh, Sam Rolf uh, is credited with the story and also uh, worked on the teleplay. Uh, the reason why Sam Rolf is a name that, A, we haven't heard before, but is also super interesting uh, and pretty cool, is that he was the creator of Have Gun, Will Travel, uh, which starred Richard Boone and aired from 1957 oh, to 1963. That's really cool. Yeah, which kind of plays in this episode, obviously. He also was the uh, creator, co-creator of The Man from U.N.C.L.E. Uh, television show and its spinoff, The Girl from U.N.C.L.E. Um, he did indeed write an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, this is the- not a Star Trek podcast! <laughs> the season three Stop episode, it. The Vengeance Factor. Uh, and uh, another neat piece of trivia, he wrote arguably one of my favorite 
Jimmy Stewart films, um, the classic Anthony Mann western, uh, The Naked Spur. Which, Ooh, uh, oh th- God, that's that's an old western. I think we we, we had on videotape when I was a kid because mm. we would just like tape you know westerns or, and, and movies just like off TV and just have them you know absolutely forever. And that's one I haven't seen in years, but I'm sure that that's one that my dad had recorded off TV. Yeah, it was it was a very um, one of the things I think that kind of makes the movie a bit of a standout is it was kind of a departure for Jimmy Stewart. He played sort of a darker, grittier character, um, um, you know, and he was obviously kind of uh, better known even today as being kind of more the lovable everyman. But in this, he played a, a bounty hunter who was uh, a little little. Well, shades of gray to the character. That's so, right, yeah. But yeah, so yeah. so I thought that was really interesting that, that he would get this story credit and be the co-writer. Uh, he, he also um, wrote this particular teleplay with Chris Rupenthal, who is, of course, another guy that we are very familiar with. This is his ninth yes. um, of ten episodes that he would write, including, again, some of our favorites like Good Morning Peoria, uh, Freedom... Uh, also wrote One Strobe Over the Line. Uh, so, <laughs> so yeah. So a couple of things about Chris Rupenthal, if I can interject here. So uh, one, uh, when you see on the screen, and I'm looking at it here because I'm looking at uh, Matt Dale's book here, is that whenever you're looking at the credits of a TV show, and if you see teleplay or script or whatever language they use, there is a difference between when they say by, for example, Sam Rolfe and Chris Rupenthal mm-hmm. and Sam Rolfe ampersand Chris Rumpenthal. Mm. The difference is if it's the ampersand, that means they worked on it together. If there's the and, that means the second writer came back and did work later after the first writer did it. Interesting. And it's interesting to note, and this is in Matt Dale's book, uh, when asked about this, I think, for uh, the Quantum Leap podcast, which they get to call themselves because they were the first podcast, uh, (laughs) Chris Ropenthal actually had no memory of working on this episode. Interesting. I, you know, I almost wonder, knowing Sam Rolfe's background, and this is just speculation on my part, if he may have written this piece and it not necessarily have been written specifically for Quantum Leap. He just happened to have written this story about two aged gunfighters uh, and, you know, one coming back to town and, and, and that they were going to have this duel and things kind of shook out a certain way. And maybe if they had to make a couple of little changes here or there to make it fit Quantum Leap. <sighs> Because one of the that, things about yeah that really makes sense yeah, yeah uh, I, because the episode itself while while I like it quite a bit it, it feels very much like a classic sort of teleplay um, as opposed to feeling like some of the other more recent episodes that we've gotten including you know Temptation Eyes for instance uh, just last week so. Um, yeah, I, I would wonder if that might have been a little bit of the case. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it's cool, though, because we'll talk a little bit about this uh, later, just just because of the trappings of the episode itself. But I, I really love the fact that you have someone who was clearly from the golden age of television working on this episode in any capacity, because I think it's, it's very appropriate considering... Um, some of the themes of the episode and, and, and of course, the fact that it's a Western. Um, but that is really, really interesting, and it makes a lot of sense that you know that the little, 
that little small distinction between did they actually write it together or did somebody come along and do some work after the fact, uh, which, oh, which sure, as, yeah. as you pointed out, is the case bit, here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, getting back to the rundown here, uh, the air date, this is actually very interesting. If you go to IMDb, a number of other pages, the air date will be listed as January 29th, 1992. However, uh, Matt Dale did his homework and is able to verify that that was not the case, that this episode actually aired on February the 5th, 1992. Um, and in spite of the suggestion on IMDb, and other fan-produced materials um, of it being January 29th. Matt Dale apparently can confirm uh, that it was February the 5th per the Quantum Leap book and the TV guide from that particular week. Uh, oh. so, so an interesting little discrepancy out there. And again, like I said, it's on IMDb as well, so it would be very, very easy to... I, I guess, raise debate over what was the actual air date. Um, I have no recollection whatsoever because I did not watch this episode uh, in first run. So, um, and even if I did, I would have been 10 years old. So, um. sure. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, so let's just, uh, and, um, Doug, uh, oh, go ahead. Our, our leap date is November the 28th, 1957. Uh, Sam is left into Tyler Means. He's 82 years old. Um, making is this nice. is this the oldest leapy? That's what least, I was scary. I do believe that is the case. I believe this is our oldest leapy. Uh, our location is appropriately enough, Coffin, Arizona. <laughs> uh, and as the episode opens, Sam is is in the middle uh, of Main Street in the Old West and getting ready to have a, a gunfight. Yeah. So let's talk about the TV guide description, mm-hmm. uh, which I can do now because I now have um, I, I now have Matt's book back again. I have a uh, an electronic copy, a PDF copy, which he sent me for free. Thank you so, so cool. much, Matt. Uh, when you finally get caught up uh, listening to this podcast, like in 2021 or whenever, uh, Matt's a busy guy. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, TV guide: Sam's an ex-gunfighter who could help his grandson by inking a TV deal based on his legend, but his old partner returns to kill the story. And Sam. Kill the story. And I can do the, uh, also known as in other countries what this was called, uh, Mm -hmm. pretty tame, pretty tame compared to Temptation Eyes. Yeah, no joke. Okay. Um, In case you haven't listened to that one yet, uh, one of the alternate uh, foreign titles for Temptation Eyes was really racist, but yeah, go back and listen to that episode. Anyway, uh, this episode in Germany was known as The Duel. In France, it was known as Duel at the Twelve Rings of Midday. Uh, man, that, there's something very poetic about that. That is, I mean, I just want to write a short play. Rings of Midday. I, I want to write a, a, a short play now. Just, just call it that. <laughs> the Rings of Midday. And uh, in Italy, it was called A Gun for Sam. There you have it. And so, yeah, Sam leaps in. It was like you said uh, at, at the tail end of last week. They... They're, they're kind of having fun with the conceit. Like, we know Sam can't travel outside of his own lifetime. Yeah. Unless it sweeps. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, kind of playing with the notion of, yeah, he, he's leaping into a Western, but he's not leaping beyond his own lifetime because, um, as we soon find out after the little scare we have at the beginning where he thinks he's in a real duel, no. Sam is in uh, basically like in a small town recreation of uh, 
Tyler Means supposed legend of of cleaning up Coffin, Arizona. Yeah, taking care of those dirty claggets. Claggett boys. <laughs> so we get this comical bit of like Sam totally flails and doesn't know what the hell he's doing, but even still he somehow manages to shoot his opponent who who falls over dead in the classic old Western way. Yeah. Um, which I, I, I kind of love. I was watching some, I don't know, a violent TV show a few weeks ago and, and reflecting on how, on how now it was Westworld, actually, uh, appropriately enough. Mm. Um, which you, if you haven't seen that show, like it takes place in a simulated Western world that people can go basically like play and play characters in. Uh, but it's a modern show. It's on HBO. So there's like this one ultra violent scene where somebody shoots another character in the back of the head and you actually see the face get blown off. Mm. And I kind of miss the old Westerns where someone just gets shot and they just go, and they yeah. grab their midsection and you just see some stage blood and then they keel over. Right. And sometimes you didn't even see blood. You know, sometimes it was just you didn't you didn't even need that. I suppose it was just enough to. Yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, violence is a very, very, very interesting thing uh, in the way that it is depicted. Um I, I, sometimes I can't help but think of the Rambo films because it's like each film as it went on would get more and more violent. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, 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 and the last one in particular was like the violence was basically, you know, gore. Um, and I guess that that's the difference, you know, it's, 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 um, we could sit here and debate artistic merit of it all day long, but, uh, I, I do agree with you. I mean, there's something to be said for, for a simple, you know, this happened as opposed to being so explicit. Um, yeah. Yeah. But hey, that's, that's HBO's wheelhouse these days. After Game of Thrones, they've got to, you know, keep the dismemberment, dismemberment high, I suppose. they gotta, they got to get that going, yeah. So, uh, so Sam kind of fumbles, and he's saved basically by the, by the bartender. Uh, I'm looking at the IMDB page. I honestly, I cannot tell which one is the bartender. Do you remember the bartender's name? No, I, you know, it, it, it's funny because half of the cast doesn't even have bio photos on IMDB. Yeah. And, 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 and those that do like even somebody like John Anderson, you can recognize him, but still the pictures like, you know, from the fifties or sixties, whereas, you know, we're seeing him much older. And, and, and so the pictures, some of the, yeah, some of the photographs don't even necessarily match up with the way that these actors looked. In, in present time in, the, in this episode. Um, so, yeah, when it comes to some of these actors, I'm, I'm going to be woefully ignorant of, of who exactly they were. Um, I really only paid attention to, you know, to our main sort of named characters. Sure. Um, so for the sake of brevity, yeah, maybe we'll just do that. So we do meet Susan Isaacs early on, and we have well, seen... we re-meet her. <laughs> we re-meet her, yes. Uh, she uh, was in Heart of a Champion. Yes, indeed. Um, played uh, Sam's sister-in-law uh, in that episode, um, and now she's back playing his daughter. Um, and of course, she has a son, Stevie, um, played by Sean Baca, who uh, had just come off of a run as the character Craig Hobson on The Wonder Years. Um, and and both uh, and both actors do a wonderful job with the material, and and, and I think the relationship between Sam and, and, and both of them respectively, uh, it comes off really well. So, yeah. um, 
yeah, I mean, they, they, they do a great job. Yeah. So it's a good uh, bit of trivia from Matt's book. So Susan was concerned about being recast in the show. She was afraid that she would be recognized. Um, and she was told, don't worry, we'll pad your bra. You'll get rid of the accent. They'll never know. <laughs> uh, and she mentioned this. Apparently, she appeared at uh, the Quantum Leap Convention in 2009. Okay. And she, and she dropped that tidbit of information. Um, wow. And it is interesting because it's like, you know, we talk about this all the time on the show. It's like we were in a time like back then where like we didn't know that TV shows eventually were going to be put on DVD and Blu-ray and streaming and that we get to watch the shows over and over again and forever. You know, it's just like, a you know, right. A first run TV show, maybe you catch it in reruns. It's, it's weird that I, I kind of find it weird that she would be concerned by that. But that's but that's my thing. That's my hang up, not hers. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so we meet uh, Stevie, who is really interesting. Uh, yeah, why do you say that? Because one, he kind of reminds me of the kid off The Rifleman, which is a western that I watched all mm-hmm. the time when I was a little kid. Sure. And I, he he almost physically resembles him, and I wonder how intentional that was. And um, there's a scene coming up later with the sheriff where basically the sheriff is calling out for Tyler to be a, a liar and a yarn spinner. Yeah. And Tyler just has this really dark turns with these lines about, uh, I can't remember exactly what it's like. It's like, you know, someone so fat and slow isn't worth getting to know, blah, blah, blah. And it's just the way he delivers those lines. I'm like, oh, you're not just like a gosh golly kid. You got a dark side. Mm. Uh, and then he shows up at the bar later, you know, with a gun, like ready to fight. So yeah, right. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I enjoyed Stevie's character. Yeah, me too. I, I think that uh, you know a lot of the scenes, especially in the latter half of the episode between he and Sam, are, are really some of the best scenes in the whole episode. Um, you know, which, which we'll get to. Uh, but it's it's you know fairly shortly after all of this that we get introduced to um, the television producer. Yeah. Steiner. Um, yeah. Who's played by uh, Kenneth Tigar, um, and he's a, a fairly familiar face, um, you know, done quite a bit of, of film and television, um, and even uh, recently uh, has been playing um, the character of uh, Heinrich Himmler in The Man in the High Castle, on um, Amazon Prime, uh, uh, okay. but yeah, you know, a fairly lengthy career um, again in both film and television, going back to the early seventies, um, and has you know did did all the guest spots and all the TV shows like The Rockford Files and um, uh, Charlie's Angels and Kojak and kind of you know, started out doing that sort of thing and uh, later on you know got some recurring roles on a few things here and there. Uh, and, and then made that transition over into film, uh, a lot of film in, in the early 90s, uh, it looks like. Uh, of course, also uh, worth giving the shout-out that he was in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, not a very good one, mind you, but uh, he was which, in Symbiosis which, playing the character Morgan. Um, oh, God. Was that was that like a first or second season one? Yeah, yeah. I think uh. it was second season. Or it might have been first, actually. Um, he also, memorably to me anyway, played the bomb squad leader in Lethal Weapon 2. He's the guy that ends up letting Riggs stay uh, in the bathroom with Murtaugh when Murtaugh's on the toilet and can't get up because sure. uh, there's a bomb under the toilet. So, 
Um, but uh, yeah, I, again, I mean, just just lots and lots of, of credits. Oh. Um, also, he was in the Avengers it. just as German old man. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. Um, so yeah, so we we get we get introduced to the TV producer, and it just like throw out the plot of the episode so that we can just talk about the episode is that TV producer is there to get Tyler story to turn into a TV series Western for NBC. I think it, yeah, it's NBC. Yeah, he says NBC yeah. 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 For NBC. Um, and this is important because basically, um, uh, the family, Tyler's family, they are struggling to make ends meet. Right. Lucy and Stevie. So this will be money. Uh, basically, for them to live on and just be, you know, just be set and take care, uh, yeah, take care of and, and take care. So that's so that's why this is important until the wrench gets thrown in. Uh, yeah, which we'll talk about here a little bit later. Uh, one thing that I wanted to note, um, everyone, I think that anyone who's followed the podcast will have taken note in other episodes that I, I'm a huge fan of the golden age of television. And, and just think that it's a really interesting time in entertainment and pop culture. Uh, and at the time that this episode is set, uh, there were already quite a few Westerns on the air. Um, they, they were really kind of a uh, hot commodity. They drew ratings, and they were also easy to produce because a lot of these television stations uh, and networks were able to reuse established sets that have been created for films. Uh, they were oftentimes, they were reusing uh, costume pieces. They were reusing, you know, all, all, so, so they were kind of cheap to make, surprisingly enough. You had a lot of guys that were very experienced with you know, horseback riding and, 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 and quick draw, etc., etc., just because, again, film had, had long um, been able to produce westerns cheaply and easily and make money off of them. Uh, so television was no different in the early days. In fact, in 1959, there were actually... 30 westerns uh, being produced at one time. So you had 30 western shows on the air. And this is back in a day when you really only had four or five channels to watch. This is, you know, like that was it. So they Um, were, yeah, they were all... So they were on all the time, pretty much. You could watch one every day of the week. Um, Multiple ones every day of the week, obviously. Do we have a modern-day equivalent to that? Police procedurals? I mean, at one time, I would definitely say police procedurals, but even now, I don't know that there are as many of those on the air as there used to be. Huh. That's but yeah, I would say that yeah. that's probably the closest that we've come. Yeah, um, interesting. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they were a wonderful breeding ground for uh, talent as well, because back in the day, you had actors kind of as diverse as like Clint Eastwood, uh, Steve McQueen, Burt Reynolds, Lloyd Bridges, like all of these guys basically got their start in television westerns. Um, and in the cases of Clint Eastwood and Steve McQueen actually starred in westerns with uh, uh, Rawhide for Clint Eastwood and Wanted Dead or Alive for Steve McQueen. Um, and that was, you know, how they made their bones basically. Um, but it wasn't just restricted to actors. You also had producers and writers like Rod Serling, um, and Gene Roddenberry. Um, Gene Roddenberry was a, a writer, award winning writer actually for the television program. Half gun will travel, um, you know, long before star Trek ever became a uh, reality. And Rod Serling also had written some teleplays for Westerns as well. Um, before the Twilight Zone, and then of course the Twilight Zone itself had a couple of episodes that were Western themed, uh, also. So, um, so yeah, I, I think that it's just kind of 
cool to think about that aspect of this episode because it's an easy uh, element of the plot, I think, to lose a little bit of sight of because of what happens shortly after that gets introduced when Pat Knight makes his entrance. <laughs> yes. So, uh, I lo- yeah, I love, uh, I love John Anderson. Uh, yeah. it, you've seen a lot of things. He is also in one of my... This is not a Star Trek podcast. Uh, <laughs> he's in one of my favorite episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, I can't remember the title of it off of the top of my head. Let's see if Survivors. it's Survivor. Yes, uh, The Survivors. Um, um, yes, uh, just one of my favorite uh, favorite episodes. Um, which also, his, his wife in that episode was also in a couple episodes of Quantum Leap. Um, she was in Eight and a Half Months. And... Another one now that I can't recall, but anyway, all the connections. But yeah, another guy who had a, a very lengthy, lengthy career uh, in Hollywood, you know, dating back to uh, the fifties, and and was in um, a number of you know golden age television programs. Um, also, I think worth noting because we do name check on occasion the MacGyver Project blog, uh, but mm-hmm. he played um, um, MacGyver's grandfather. Uh, on the MacGyver show, Harry, and uh, is, is quite memorable uh, for me in that role because it, it was one of those rare occurrences where you had a recurring character who every time sort of added depth to the main character's background. You know, I feel like in a lot of television programs of the 80s in particular, like you might not necessarily learn a whole lot about a character's background unless it was convenient for the plot. Like, you know, it's like, Oh, here's this, here's my best friend that we've never seen before that I've known for 20 years. And he's going to come in and remind us of the one time we got drunk at some bar or whatever. And now he turns out he killed somebody, you know, stuff like that. Whereas in MacGyver, the cool thing was, is whenever Harry was around, you got to learn a little bit about MacGyver's past and like how he might've learned, um, you know, this particular aspect of his, you know, diversion making, et cetera, et cetera. And also of course played into the fact that his parents died in a car crash when he was young and his grandfather helped raise him. And they had kind of a contentious relationship, you know, when MacGyver finally left the house and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, also I think kind of salient to this particular episode, he had, um, a string of guest spots on Gunsmoke playing a different character each time. Uh, that's uh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, in no less than 12 episodes. So in 12 episodes, he played 11 different characters. That That is amazing. <laughs> I mean, but Gunsmoke was on for like 30 years. Yes. Not 30 years, but it was, it was on for quite a while. It was on, yeah, it was, it was on for, uh, yeah, something like 17 seasons or something like it. it. It had premiered in 1955, so it was already on the air for about two years uh, by the time that this episode is set. Yeah. Interesting piece of trivia about Gunsmoke, uh, which a lot of people probably know, but worth mentioning anyway, is that uh, initially the lead role was offered to John Wayne, and John Wayne turned it down because he didn't want to do television, but he suggested James Arness for the lead role. Yep. He even, I don't know if you knew this, he even introduced the first episode. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. He he was kind of like the, uh, I guess, the ambassador for for the show to the audience. He was just like saying, hey, I'm like... I'm like hot shit. I'm the, I'm the guy that you think of when you think of Westerns right now. They yeah. wanted me, but I'm vouching for my friend uh, James Arness right here. Enjoy the show. Yeah. And people did. For and many, it worked. Many years. Yes. Uh, so basically, so, so Pat Knight shows up, and his beef with Tyler is that Tyler has written him out of the story of cleaning up the town and is stealing his glory. 
And now he's back. Yeah, and, and I have to say that for a character who is definitely the heavy um, in the episode, what a well-rounded, well-played, obviously, character in Pat Knight. Because even from the very beginning, like even from his introduction, he he looks like the bad guy. He kind of talks like the bad guy. He's clearly here with malice in mind, which makes him the bad guy. But he is interesting, three-dimensional, and ultimately quite sympathetic, uh, which I he, think is is really one of the master strokes of the episode for me. He is. I mean, it's because like he. I mean, he's clearly he's supposed to be the heavy, but I never thought of him as the villain. Yes, because he has a legitimate beef. And I don't know, because, like, there, there's an honor. Like, he's not coming to shoot Tyler in the back. Right. You know? He's like, you're going to see not, this coming, you know? You know, like, you're going to see this coming. We're going to do this the old-fashioned way. We're going to do this, like, civilized gentlemen, and we're going to gun each other down in the street. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there, there, is, there is an honor to it. Um, um. One thing that I wanted to mention real quick, because I couldn't find any information on um, the old uh, IMDb to back this up, so I don't know if you know anything about this at all, Dennis, but on Al's Place, there was mention of the fact that John Anderson was in a television movie called I-Man in 1986, playing a character, uh, Holbrook. And that this television movie also starred Scott Bakula. Um, I have listed. seen, yes, I have seen snippets of I-Man on YouTube. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting because it's not, like I said, it's not on his um, his IMDb page. Um, so I don't know if, if, if John Anderson is actually in it uh, or if this was just a mistaken identity. Um, but anyway, uh, I thought that that was kind of interesting that he was um, listed in the... um, Oh, there it is. Just kidding. I found it. But I don't see... Oh, there's John Anderson. Yep, playing Holbrook. Scott Bakula starred as Jeffrey Wilder. It's weird because it's not on John Anderson's page, but uh, I have it here. Oh, I know why now, because it's not listed as Iron Man. It's listed as the magical world of Disney. I should have done that homework beforehand so I could have verified the fact that I wrote down. But anyway. No, that's uh, fine. <laughs> so, yeah, I just thought that, that was really interesting. That they'd worked before just a few years prior, and it was one of Scott Bakula's you know, very first um, um, you know, TV movie roles or whatnot. But uh, also, sadly, this was one of John Anderson's last roles. He would act in one other project after this. Um, and then passed away um, at the end of 1992. Just, just oh, you know, but, like, but, but what a way to go out! Yeah, right. Yeah. So, what are uh, what are some of your favorite moments of this episode? I, I, man. Um, so the the three that really stick out uh, are the introduction of Pat Knight. I, mm-hmm. I really love the way that he comes in. I love the confrontation with Sam. I love Sam's reaction to the whole thing. I think that it, it, it plays well into the dynamic of the show and, and Sam feeling out of his depth and not understanding the situation because he doesn't have the knowledge that, that Tyler Means would have. Um, I really So I really like that. Um, I love the scene between Pat and Sam and Stevie when... Um, Pat 
and Sam are talking about having run the Claggots out mm-hmm. of town and then what happened afterwards and, and Pat um, uh, uh, talks about going back to, to comfort the sister who was yes. you know, brokenhearted <laughs> after her after her brothers yeah. had been killed by these guys. Um, the, that, that scene in particular where they're kind of talking about what happened, uh, you know, 50, 60 years ago is, is like a movie unto itself in so much as what you can imagine. Yeah. Like you can imagine the prequel. It's like, you know, there's a whole other movie there basically just for the, for the taking for your imagination. And I love stuff like that because it, you know, it's, it, it paints a very vivid picture that's easy to imagine. And then I absolutely love the scene where Stevie comes into the, the bar with, uh, his, you know, his grandpa's gun, saying mm-hmm. that he's going to fight Pat. And just, I, I basically anything with John Anderson, he's just so fucking great in this episode. He's, I, I, I agree. I, I, I love it. I, I love the fact that, um, Susie, is, is that the character's name? Uh, the, the daughter, like, um, Lucy, uh, yeah, Lucy, yeah. like Lucy kind of knows that, that Tyler is full of crap, mm-hmm. but, him selling his stories that that's what they're kind of writing on yeah you know and so it's like this delicate balance of i know you're full of crap but you're 82 i gotta humor you like this is where this is how we're gonna live and and steve and, and stevie he believes in you like 100 percent. like he thinks all of this is true um i love that dynamic i i love the scene that you mentioned of, of just them drinking each other under the table and, and telling the stories of like this is, um, aside from the Leap Home Part 2, those are the two times in the series where we see Sam drunk. Yeah. And uh, so I love it. It's, uh, Sam is rare, rarely very playful. Uh, so just him, like, him just starting to like make up stories yeah. during that scene. Remember this? <laughs> and the daughters. And the, the farmer's daughter. The farmer's no daughter. daughter. I don't remember the daughters. Um <laughs> And Al's reaction to that, Al's outfits, I love. Yeah. Uh, throughout this episode, and pro, uh, uh, the one thing you didn't mention is I love Al's story of how he learned how to <laughs> gunfight. She had the most amazing pair, pair of pistols, <laughs> pistols, pistoleros, yeah. shooters, and this is also uh, falls under uh, Matt's category. Al knows everything, of course. Al knows how to how to shoot a gun. Yep. Uh, and the thing is, um, uh, what I love about the gunfight, I, I just love how the gunfight plays out. Yeah. In that it's anticlimactic. First off, the music leading up to it. The music, this is what, like, one of the, the actual, like, musical suites that they have on the soundtrack. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a track on the soundtrack. Which is, well, yeah, which is fantastic. I think I've listened to that music on the soundtrack more than the actual times I've seen this episode. <laughs> I, yeah, yep. Same yeah. there, yeah. Uh, and how it just ends like very anticlimactically. So let me ask you this: How do you interpret the gunfight scene? What happened? That's a great question. Um, I think, I think Sam obviously outdraws Pat, and then I think that when. Pat realizes that he's not going to shoot him. I, I think I think that there's just a moment 
where everything kind of crystallizes, you know, perhaps for, for both of them. I mean, obviously, I don't think Sam really was intending to shoot him to begin with. But I think for Pat, it's a moment, especially after the scene with Stevie in the bar. Um, you know, he's got that line about how he killed his first man when he was 15, but that they grow up fast these days, you know, that sort of thing. And, uh, and there's been all this talk about pride before that. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's just something about saying you're going to do something mm-hmm. and actually doing it are two very different things. And I think for Pat, it's it's a moment of realizing that he doesn't want to kill this man. He doesn't want to kill his friend. And, he, and he's defeated. He's been defeated. Uh, um, that's interesting. Okay. And I think that he and I think that he decides to accept that defeat rather than act out in some sort of you know anger uh, or, or malice and, and take Tyler's life in front of his daughter and grandson when he knows he's been bested. Because I think that that's the thing about Pat that makes him so interesting. He is an honorable man. The whole reason he's there is because he's fighting for his honor. Okay, and so I think that his uh, you know his sense of honor will not allow him at that point to shoot Tyler down because he knows that Tyler could have shot him and he didn't. That's how I saw it anyway. So to be cl- so, you think ultimately Sam outdrew Pat, but even still, Pat chose to still not go through with pulling his gun. I mean, that's how I saw it, yeah. I mean, I never got to that second part. I've always interpreted as um, Pat underestimated how quick he still was. Like, I, mm. don't think, I don't think Sam was a quick draw by any means. Sure. But I think as slow and as inexperienced as Sam was, Pat is older, mm-hmm. and he was just slow on the draw. And so I think it, it, it's one of those things like he realized that he was outdrew. Sam chooses not to shoot. And like, and then that's it. Yeah. To me, it's like I never, I, maybe I'm misunderstanding you. Like I never really um, thought of it as Pat deciding to not go through with it. Mm, I feel like that choice was made for him. You know what I mean? Like, he 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 gets outdrawn. Sam is pointing the gun at him. He knows that Sam, Tyler, didn't want to get into the fight anyway. So once he sees that Sam has outdrawn him and he's not shooting, like, he knows he's not going to get shot if he doesn't pull his gun. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, you know, I think I think we're we're we might be saying very similar things, just coming at it from different angles. Because okay. because I because I, I I agree with what you're saying. I just think that from for me, the look on his face, the look on Pat's face when he's been outdrawn, there's more to it than just defeat. You know, and again, he doesn't act out in anger. He doesn't. It, there's acceptance there. And I think that that, for me, that seeing that acceptance 
is is very is very much what you're talking about as well. But I just think that it kind of has a little a little something to do with his again his sense of honor. Sure. Um, and 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 realize and 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 I think that that's there's something about this episode in particular with Stevie's character that is a wonderful commentary on on masculinity and what it means to be a man. And Stevie, throughout the course of this episode, clearly thinks that what it means to be a man is to be able to carry a gun and use that gun and, you know, and, and act out in violence and, you know, and all this sort of thing. Sure. And, I mean, I guess. Yeah, go ahead. And I think that and I think that Sam, you know, tries to help him understand that that's not the case, that, that, that you know, your, your sense of pride there's there's more to your sense of pride than what other people think about you. Sure, you know that sometimes it's 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 worth uh, you know turning the other cheek. Basically, it's worth it's worth understanding and being smart that you you, know, you don't have to put yourself into a situation that results in 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 violence or bloodshed. Uh, you don't have to prove anything to anyone other than yourself. Um, and I think that. Pat, in a similar manner, by you know by by accepting that defeat, um, kind of helps to prove Sam's point, and mm-hmm. I think that it, 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 in a way, it kind of I don't know it's 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 an interesting. Again, you know, contextually speaking, we know that in the fifties, when people were watching you know western shows and things like that, that it, that there was a kind of maybe. Um, and innocence for some people. Uh, uh, when you saw that, you didn't, you weren't taking into account um, the violence in the same way. It was almost fantasy. It sure, was, you know, it was, it was um, escapism. And then, obviously, by the time this episode aired, we'd already had our revisionist Western period, where you know we we saw those morally questionable characters, and we'd had our spaghetti westerns like Good, the Bad, the Ugly, where you know basically all three of these guys are bad people. Um, uh, and when we get to the shootout at the end, it's it's you know who's less bad than the others, basically. You know, uh, so so we'd kind of gone through those periods. So there was something about uh, the the way that these characters had been portrayed and treated that we could comment on them you know, almost in like a meta way that um, the tired old story of the, the heroic gunfighter gets turned on its ear slightly, which obviously in this episode happens as well because they're supposed to, you know, Tyler's supposed to be this heroic gunfighter, but we learn that maybe he's not quite as heroic as we thought that he was, you know, and not as honorable as, as, as everyone thought that he was. And then, of course, you know, fast forward to today and the, you know, commentary on things like toxic masculinity uh, and certainly how that would come into play with some of these macho displays of, 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 of bravery, if you will, and, and, and uh, heroics by these Old West gunfighters. I think that, that it, it makes an interesting statement for a 27-year-old television program um, well, you know, with with certainly a basis that we had seen before. I mean, this is not a new story where you know the, the little kid thinks he's got to pick up a gun and, and and win the day, and somebody lets him know that he doesn't have to do that, and that sometimes it is better to you know to find an alternative way out. And, and you, you know, Tyler didn't have to kill Pat. That that just by outdrawing him, it was enough, and 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 Pat was man enough to man enough, whatever that means, to to accept his defeat gracefully. 
And, sure. And, and then we get this really nice resolution between the characters. So that's I, that. That was definitely a big part of it for me. And 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 I I thought that it was really interesting to kind of play with that coward versus being a real man dynamic, and, and, and in a way that to me seems as topical today as it would have been twenty seven years ago, as it would have been sixty years ago, as it would have been one hundred and fifty years ago. You know. Yeah. I think that's interesting. It's, it's yes, and I, I like. You know, just the honor of like, hey, we're going to do this thing, but no one's actually going to get shot and killed. Uh, Reminds me a lot. um, uh, I was reading when I saw Hamilton a little over a year ago, like I was reading up on the, you know, the the history of the time and how duels actually worked and how most of the time nobody ended up getting shot. It was a matter of honor. It was like this little play that they were playing out, but then usually like one or both would just end up like shooting their gun up into the sky when they had duels, and no one would get killed. Mm. Um, I don't know. Have you, have you seen... I mean, I'm certainly you know the story. Have you seen Hamilton? I've not yet? seen it yet, actually. No. Oh, God. Have no. you listened to the soundtrack even? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've listened okay. to the soundtrack numerous um, times. And it's shit, yeah. It, it, and it's it, like you said, it, it's it's all hung up in honor, and like half the time they didn't even really shoot each other. Now I wonder how that evolved between you know like the time that Hamilton is set in, and you know how it actually was in in Western times, right? Uh, but the thing is, I this was a great. This is a kind of an aside here, but we've been short on asides this episode, so let's go <laughs> with it. Um, uh, this is this tidbit is not included in Hamilton in the musical. Uh, but are you, are you familiar with the show Drunk History? Yeah. Yep. So they had Lin-Manuel on the show mm-hmm. to tell the story of Hamilton. And this fucking fantastic tidbit that he throws in Hamilton, that he throws in Drunk History, that is not included in Hamilton in the musical, which I cannot believe, yeah. is that before the duel where Hamilton got shot, he wrote a letter saying he had no intention of of shooting Burr, he was going to shoot his gun up into the sky. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, he fucks Burr. Mm-hmm. Because when Burr kills him, Burr becomes the villain. Yeah. Man. I, I mean, yeah, history is filled with fascinating... Yeah. Um, but also at the same, and this is another tidbit that I, you know, uh, Hamilton ends the way it ends. It's like they make you they make you feel like Burr is filled with guilt for what he did. Mm-hmm. But actually, according to records that we have, he wasn't. Yeah. Even actually, even after the fact, he still referred to to Hamilton as his friend mm. after he killed him. That he just yeah he was just talking about casually yeah Hamilton my friend. Who I killed. Uh, so it just kind of plays in how like this was just like a, a part of life, right? Right. Back then, uh, yeah. Some, you know, sometimes, sometimes you kill people and you're kind of a dick, <laughs> but but you're not a bad guy, right? Um. Anyway, yes, found that interesting. Yeah, um, I, well, I, you know, I think that the the. the the old west certainly has a mythology all its own and and we know enough now uh to know that a lot of those sorts of tales of daring do and uh, you know duels in the street at at high noon etc cetera, etc cetera, were actually 
you know, far and few between. And I think that that's another thing that the episode does nicely is deconstruct some of those myths in a very, you know, graceful, subtle way. It's not about that story necessarily. It's, you know, it's about these two men, which of course is, is going to make the story even better for it. But, um, yeah, I, I, the, one of the things that I will say that's fascinating though is if you know anything about the, like the the story of, of Billy the Kid, um, is, is that you know a lot of a lot of that, even those Young Guns movies, is actually fairly close to what really happened, which is fascinating because it's like oh this is the type of stuff that 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 you know we've been told never happens but it did happen mm-hmm. you know this this once if you will. Um, so uh, yeah, for every, for every story out there that you can kind of poke a million holes in and say like, well, that's not how it really went down. There's, you know, a couple of stories out there that are just almost too good to be true. Be true. Yeah. The thing, uh, jumping about that, like how it really was, um, something about this episode that always stuck with me. It's just the little tidbit of trivia that, that Al drops in in the one scene when they're, when they're practicing shooting is that. In the real Old West, the gunfights, they were always standing 10 or 15 feet from each other. Mm. And anything beyond that was Hollywood. Yeah. I always found that a fascinating tidbit. Because I, I, I grew up watching a ton of Westerns back in the day. Yeah. Oh, anyway. yeah. I mean, I, gosh, even even to this day, you know, when my dad is, is around, uh, inevitably he'll, you know, find me TV or, or, or one of those types of channels and, you know, eventually something like have gun will travel or the rifleman or or gunsmoke comes on and you know or 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 I'll throw in a DVD or a blu-ray of uh, blu-ray of a western because I know that uh, that it'll hold his interest that he'll enjoy it um so I, I grew up with quite a few of them in my household too um uh, uh one thing that is interesting uh and is no surprise with the length of his career but uh in 1957 um Dean Stockwell was actually working on the uh, television program Wagon Train, which was a Western. Oh, uh, was he yeah. a regular? He was not a regular. Uh, okay. He guest starred on it uh, four times as four different characters. Um, sure. But he did indeed in 1957, he was actually on an episode um, of Wagon Train called The Ruth Owens Story. Um, and, and he would go on to do other westerns like Outlaws and, 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 and much more. Um, I mean, his career is just is so lengthy and so varied it's, that, that naturally he was going to have uh, hit a couple westerns here and there, including Bonanza, which is funny because he does name check. Um, is it Haas? Is that who he? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, name checks in the course of the episode. So uh, uh, just a nice Al, little connection Al there for, loves, for Dean Stockwell. Yeah, he loves the he loves the bonanza because like it's also back in uh, Disco Inferno when when Sam, right. is, when Sam is about to be rescued by Ben Cartwright. Um, and <laughs> I also, oh, go, go ahead. I was just going to say he also has one of my favorite lines, Al lines. Uh, in this episode, the high ho silver oive, oive, <laughs> which yes, uh, and I've, I've also I have also mentioned this before uh, on the podcast. Uh, Dean Stockwell's very next acting credit after Quantum Leap wrapped up, he was in Bonanza: The Return. Oh my god! Uh, which was a TV movie which kind of like focused in on on the sons. Of of the Cartwrights, um, basically it was Bonanza: The Next Generation, and uh, he was basically like the bad guy 
of the of the of the movie. Augustus uh, Brandenburg. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, a man with a grudge against the late little Joe, which was Michael Landon's character, seeks revenge on the Cartwrights and attempts to take over the Ponderosa. Oh man. Um, but um, yeah, I remember watching that when when I was because I was a Bonanza fan, and so a, a Bonanza reunion, basically, plus yeah. Dean Stockwell. Oh yeah. Sign me up. I don't know if this was intended to be a backdoor pilot to reboot Bonanza. I mean, you would think so, right? If you're dealing with the younger generation of characters, why why wouldn't you, you well, know, hope that it would go in that direction? But well, but but here's the thing: by this point, Michael Landon had passed away. Right. Uh, uh, Lauren Green had passed away. I'm pretty sure Dan Blocker, who played Hoss, had passed away. Pernell Roberts, who played Adam. I don't know how much of Bonanza did you watch. Not not much. Okay, so uh, this is just an interesting from a from an from a behind the scenes TV standpoint. Pernell Roberts hated the show. Okay, hated the show. He had a theater background, and he thought it was just vile, boring, tepid shit. Oh man, he was just around for the first five years, fulfilling his contract collecting his paycheck sure and i remember uh either reading reading a thing or, or or seeing some documentary where michael landon was talking about how he was so horrible to work with on the show mm. because he would do things like you know like if they were shooting a scene where they're facing each other you know michael landon gave the example of like like they're facing each other like sitting at a table and like when they do when they do uh, you know shots like that in a, in a multi camera t- or not a multi camera but a one camera TV show like they'll shoot one side facing one actor and then they'll go back and they'll reshoot those scenes again from the opposite perspective right mm-hmm. and so Pernell Roberts he hated being on this show so bad that when the camera wasn't on him and the and, and the camera was like was on his back he would just sit there dead eyed. He would not act. He would not give his scene partner anything. Oh, man. He would just sit there dead-eyed because he was that bored with the show. That's that's awful. That, yeah. I mean, you know, hey... So it's do, like right? so but that show. So that show was on for fourteen seasons, but I think he was only on the first five, which I think was yeah. like the standard TV contract. Like he he did his thing and then he left, and then yeah, and then he was done. Yeah, oh, man. I, 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 I again, I, the, the old days of, of television, and in particular when it comes to uh, to some of the personalities working in TV at the time, I am always fascinated because I know that there were a lot of people that did turn their nose up at, at television. And then there are a lot of people that clearly worked very hard and, and, and were in, you know, multiple series and teleplays and, um, and, and it had successful film crews too. You know, I think of somebody like Burgess Meredith as a really good example. You know, here's a guy who had done plenty of film. Um, had 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 won quite a bit of critical acclaim when he played George in the film production of Mice and Men, and and then you know he spent uh, sort of the the middle years of his career just every 
you know, TV show you can imagine from Twilight Zone to Batman to, you know, everything in between, working on television a lot, and then having a, you know, kind of a, a later, a late career, you know, resurgence is playing, playing the old man, uh, yeah. <laughs> in, you know, yeah. in grumpy old men and whatnot. But, uh, uh, yeah, I, I think that the medium itself has, has always attracted a, a really interesting bunch of people. And, um, you know, sometimes it's certainly seen as being sort of a springboard for some actors to get into film. Um, and nowadays, of course, there's plenty of examples of, of actors who, um, you know, go to do television, uh, after they've had film careers. I think of a show like Big Little Lies, you know, I mean, all of the actors working, uh, Nicole Kidman, Reese Witherspoon, Meryl Streep, you know, you've got these, these amazing actors working on the show that have had these lengthy film careers, um, and not necessarily done a whole lot of television. And now here they are, you know, working in, in, in television as a medium and, and the, the way that it's evolved as a, just as a vehicle for storytelling, I think is, is fascinating uh, and has been fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's amazing. Cause I feel like maybe the late nineties, early two thousands is when we started making that shift. Yeah. Uh, cause I remember reading, uh, hearing a story once of, uh, uh, Tom Hanks having seen Charlize Theron in a movie mm-hmm. and he approached her at some party and basically said something like, you are fantastic. Promise me you will never do television. Uh, Which is Tom funny Hanks. considering that at, by by that point he had already kind of uh, I, I think produced if it was you know late nineties early two thousands he'd been a producer on From Earth to the Moon and Band, Band of Brothers. Brothers and sure yeah and he started off and he started off in television that bosom buddies man yeah bosom buddies and there was oh god. Uh, we had it taped off TV when I was a kid. It was um, it was a it was a bad made for TV horror movie mm-hmm. where I mean it was it was it was Tom Hanks before he was Tom Hanks before sure. he was a star and so it was just like a throwaway movie kind of like Paul Rudd in Halloween Six. <laughs> oh, Paul Rudd. Anyway, um, uh, one other thing we're throwing out that I think is an interesting parallel. There's two very interesting parallels to this episode. Uh, one is that also in 1957, after a, a six-year hiatus from film, apparently, uh, Dean Stockwell was in a Western film um, called Gun for a Coward, uh, apparently Ooh. playing the uh, son of a rancher who is killed. And one of the sons, I can't verify if it was Dean Stockwell's character or not, because um, I have not seen the film, uh, but one of the sons apparently does not want to actually seek revenge and get in the gunfight with the people that, that killed his father. Um, and, uh, so, so nice little you know, parallel to this episode. Um, another interesting parallel to this episode, which is almost too good to be true. You can't make this up, but Sam Rolfe, of course, as we mentioned at the beginning uh, of this episode was the creator of the Western television program, have gun will travel. Well, apparently in the 70s, after the show had already been off the air for a while, uh, a man named Victor DaCosta claimed to be the inspiration for the lead character of Paladin, and uh, he would actually sue um, because he thought that he was entitled to money, you know, to revenue that the show had generated because he had been the inspiration for the character. Um, He 
apparently won his initial case and then it got tied up in, in all sorts of like appeals and you know going back and forth and this sort of thing and he, and he you know wasn't getting the money that, that he had initially uh, you know been awarded um, they were trying to delay it delay it delay it and uh, a judge eventually ruled in his favor um, and he won a three million dollar settlement um, that he had indeed been the inspiration for the character right down to his look. He looked like Richard Boone in Have Gun Will Travel. He carried, uh, packed a small Derringer pistol like the character did on the TV uh, show. Just kind of a lot of amazing, striking similarities. So here you have uh, the writer of of this particular episode uh, having claimed credit for the creation of this television program, only to find out that someone else says, no, 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 that's my story, and you've stolen it, and then be awarded $3 million to, uh, uh, as compensation for having you know, been the actual inspiration, according to, to a judge anyway. Uh, unfortunately, wow. this settlement was awarded to him in 1991, so just a year before this episode aired, uh, he would not be able to collect because he passed away at the age of 83. Uh. Now, let's just take a look. And I'm not trying to say that this was any sort of direct inspiration, but just for, for a moment, Sam Rolfe created Have Gun, Will Travel. Mm-hmm. A man comes along and says, you stole that idea. It's based on me. Sam Rolfe goes on to write an episode of Quantum Leap about a gunfighter who says that he cleaned up Coffin, Arizona, for a man to come into town and say, no, 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 you didn't do that. I did that. And said episode airs a year after the man that made that claim against him died and also won a $3 million settlement in his favor. Uh, if it, 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 I'm not saying it did, but if you can give me a better example of life influencing art and vice versa, I mean, that's it's pretty uncanny. I'm just, saying, I'm just saying to take inspiration from one of the things we learned from this episode. What's more interesting? That it was a coincidence? <laughs> or that it wasn't? Let's go, let's go with the thing that makes the story more fun. Yeah, right? That it was no coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, I do too. And I think that, you know... It, it, in the episode, we get this really nice scene of, of Sam as Tyler making things right with Pat. We haven't yeah. addressed this yet, but that he talks to Steiner, the television producer, and, and, and says, like, hey, Pat should be your consultant. In fact, Pat should even be in the show. Uh, you know, it's, it's a great little moment before he leaps out to kind of really set things right. It's like the bonus yes. mission for it's, him, you know? Yes, it's a nice, every little thing gets wrapped up. And yeah, it's yes, they were going to kill each other, but there was a certain honor to it. Now that they're not killing each other, hey, they're going to be friends. Yeah. Together. And, you know, and, and I think that the other thing that this episode does really well to help sort of raise the stakes and, and add to the tension is that every time Sam thinks that he comes up with a way out of this gunfight, Al is able to come back and say, like, oh, but if you do this, this happens. You know, one of the scenarios, um, Stevie runs away. In another scenario, Stevie runs away, becomes a criminal, and gets killed in a bar fight. Yeah. Uh, in another scenario, Stevie, you know, dies before that. So it's like, it, it all pushes him, leads him to having to accept the gunfight. Yeah. Um, you know, and there, there is this kind of cool cliched sort of iconic moment where he 
he gets the gun and the outfit and and goes you know goes out in that and 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 uh, is, is it the bartender that gives him the gun? I think it's yeah. like, are you going to be need? Are you going to be needing this, Tyler? And yeah. you know, and Sam's like, yeah. And you know, so he takes the gun and the outfit, and and uh, basically, you know, grabs Excalibur, puts on his suit of armor, and goes out there to do battle. <laughs> and goes out there. <laughs> this is the most exciting gunfight since the one between Clint Eastwood and Griff Tannen <laughs> in, in Hill Valley, California. Oh man! Yeah. So anyway, so Sam leaps. He does. And then a coming back. <laughs> yeah. And Sam is a singer. A soul singer. A soul singer. A female soul singer. A female woman black singer. This is... Yeah. Uh, he's leapt into women. Yep. He's leapt into black people before. Yep. Is this the one and only black woman that he leaps into during the course of the show? I do believe that is true. So, so uh, this season feels like not to diminish any anything, but it does feel like we're checking off some boxes. Sure, he's, he's leapt into an animal. Yep, he's leapt into easily the oldest person that he's been. Mm-hmm. He's leapt into a, a black woman now. Uh, mm-hmm. He's leapt into someone that uh, can be seen through basically in temptation eyes so we're, we're, we're clearly getting some um boundary pushing if you will maybe. we're not we're not getting into season five gimmick yet right right but we're getting there exactly and it's interesting that matt notes in the review that he gives of this episode that uh this episode is a western yeah there's no it, it, it's you know it is a western episode and that part of the initial conceit of the show was Belisario saying, you know, only doing this within his own lifetime. We really want these to be situations that the viewer can relate to wholesale. Now, one can easily argue that because of our exposure to, exposure to Westerns and that this episode is about a heck of a lot more than being a Western, um, that you could still find it easily relatable. But ultimately, it, it doesn't break the rules because it's set in 1957. But it does put us in a situation, in, in, in these trappings, that would not have been easily accomplished within Sam's own lifetime. That, sure. You know, even the leap in, as we noted on our last episode and at the beginning of this episode, makes you think that, oh my God, he's leapt into the Old West. Yeah. And, I mean, it's, I mean also, like, the, the town that they are in, any, I mean, like any other town, the yeah. sheriff or law enforcement would have stopped the gunfight. And right. Peter's like, no, you're a liar. Get your ass shot. Yeah. Yeah. Sheriff, Sheriff's got it out for Tyler. We he didn't really talk he, too much about that, but... We, he does, but, like, uh, you know, I was going to comment earlier that it is weird that the Sheriff just has it so out for Tyler, but he needs to have it out for Tyler to set it up so that the Sheriff is not willing to stop the gunfight. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Good times. So next time... It's going to be Song for the Soul. Song for the Soul, yeah. This is another um, one I have not watched in years. Me either. Me either. This is this is the period when I was not watching the show consistently live. Um, and so all of these episodes I would see for the first time on USA. Got it. Um, and, this, and, go ahead. 
I would I would say that this episode, the next episode, probably a couple of the others this season, I may have only seen once or twice. Oh wow! So this next one, I'm, I'm just looking ahead. It takes place in Chicago. <laughs> well, it takes place at the Regal Theater. We should we should try to sneak in and see if we can record this episode at the Regal. Yeah, right. Is it because the Regal? Yeah, that building is still standing. It doesn't exist, right? Where's the Regal Theater at? I mean, I know that there's Regal Theaters, but those that's not what this is talking but that's about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Let's just we'll go do, buy we'll a ticket to homework. We'll figure it out. And just uh, Regal Theater, Chicago. Uh, let's see if it actually... Uh, it, oh, yeah, the uh, Avalon Regal Theater. The Avalon oh, yeah. Regal Theater, yeah. It is uh, at... 1641 East 79th Street. Yeah. So it's South Side South Chicago. Shore, yeah. we, we should see if we should sneak in and be able to do a... Do it a, received landmark status June 17th, 1992. Uh, the site held a party to celebrate Obama's presidential nomination acceptance speech in August of 2008. Unfortunately, it was foreclosed on in 2011. Well, we'll go into some of this. I don't want to give all this away. We'll talk about this more next episode. <laughs> We're just going to roll right into the next episode. Yeah, awesome. I'm excited for it. Yeah, uh, that'll but, be cool. Um, the, uh, uh, I guess to, to kind of wrap things up, you know, we've, we've certainly talked about some of our, our favorite moments and that sort of stuff. Um, I would certainly say that this is a good episode, really good episode. I it enjoyed is. it quite a bit. I enjoy, in fact, I honestly enjoyed this more than I thought I was going to. Me too. Like, this is an episode, like, I've never thought it was bad. I just never connected with when I was younger. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, there's, yeah, it's not my favorite episode, but I enjoyed it. It's more for me now. Yeah. Uh, the, the music is fantastic. Yes. In the episode. Yeah. Good old Velton uh, Ray Bunch. Yeah. Earning his, earning his paycheck here. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I'm enjoying it, and looking forward to to next week diving into diving into this show. Yeah, well, you know, one thing I did want to add real quick because I, I just glanced at my notes and I realized I didn't quite articulate this earlier. But uh, going back to one of my favorite moments in the episode, the the, the true story of the Claggett showdown is is really is great, and and Pat kind of telling Sam like it is. Um, you know, painting that picture that I was talking about earlier in, in, in just a few words. Um, it, it's a great piece of screenwriting and an excellent piece of acting by John Anderson. Uh, one thing that I didn't mention, though, is that it's clear that Pat bears a weight for the killing of the Claggett brothers, uh, and I think that guilt sort of pushed him to go comfort the sister... And, and disappear for a while, and who knows exactly what happened. Again, it's left to your imagination, which I think is really, really nice. Um, but because Sam didn't actually kill those guys, was not actually a part of this, is you know, is not actually Tyler, it, it's... Sam almost gets put in, his, put in his place by Pat, and I think it's really nice. Exactly. You know? It's, it, it, it's a really cool moment where we see Sam sort of humbled a little bit by what Pat has experienced. And, um, yeah, I just think it's a great scene. And, and I think that this episode has an, a lot of really lovely scenes and I don't want to give short shrift to any of the scenes between Stevie and Sam, because there's a lot of really nice scenes between them as well. And then of course the scene between 
Pat and Stevie, as we mentioned earlier. So, yeah, this episode, I think, is going to grow in my estimation as I think about it more in, in the days and weeks and months and years ahead. A hundred <laughs> years from now, this okay. will be remembered as the best episode <laughs> of Quantum Leap. <laughs> Write it down. Mark it down. This, this will be the 43 minutes that St. Scott Bakula <laughs> is canonized for. Is, is canonized for. <laughs> and on that note, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, thank you all so very much. Uh, it is always good to be heard. Uh, so we look forward to hearing what you guys have to say about The Last Gunfighter. Um, and certainly, if you have any comments, suggestions, just want to chat about yeah. our favorite TV show. Throw us a message Let us know. on the page. Yeah. And we will uh, we will talk to you soon. Absolutely. Take care Take in care. the meantime. Uh, right. We'll be back for um, Soul Sister. I, wait, wait. What's the title of the episode? <laughs> so, Song for the Soul. Song for the Soul. That's what it is. We'll right. be back soon for Song for the Soul. I am on vacation over this next week, so it might be a couple weeks before we get you the new episode. But unfortunately, for better or worse, yeah. that's nothing new at this point. So yeah. uh, we'll be back at you in a couple weeks with Song for the Soul. Uh, we hope you enjoyed The Last Gunfighter. Uh, take care of yourselves in the meantime. Dennis, let's sleep out of here. Let's sleep out of here. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed what you've heard or have any questions or comments, don't be shy. Reach out to us online at fwwquantumleappod.com or Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Fates Wide Wheel. And remember to hit the subscribe button and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you may be listening. Until next time.